And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, if everything goes as planned, uh, there will be a series of three podcasts. Now, there'll be a week in between because each of these three podcasts will be done to go along with an article that will be on MarketWatch and on paulmerriman.com. And the reason for this series is because I, I want to lay the foundation for what Chris Pedersen and, and, and Daryl Balls and Rich Buck and myself uh, are putting together to hopefully give a, a very large group of investors a better financial future within their risk tolerance with complete knowledge as to what they are doing so that they will be savvy investors. And I think for many, it could be a life-changing event. Now, to create the foundation, to bring it kind of up to where we are right now, historically, I want to talk in this particular podcast about the three greatest investment products that I know. Now, the the history is going to be much deeper and much richer than what I'm going to talk about here relatively briefly, because certainly mutual funds didn't just all of a sudden pop up in the 1920s. There was a, a, a rich history of how uh, different kinds of pooling of uh, investors have been used to 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 build uh, businesses, but the modern mutual fund, like we know today, really came out of the 1920s. Uh, there were two, interestingly enough, that uh, are worth mentioning. One is Massachusetts Investors Trust. In uh, 1928, that loaded fund came uh, to the market. At the, in the same year, Scudder, Stevens, and Clark, and uh, many of you may know the Scudder uh, name, a uh, grand old company in the, in the industry, but Scudder came out with a mutual fund that was no load in 1928. And uh, without overwhelming you with numbers, it will not shock you to find out that uh, by far the more popular uh, fund became, in terms of public ownership, uh, became the uh, Massachusetts Investors Trust. That, that commission, that load, motivates a lot of people <laughs> to sell that rather than the no-load product. And I am going to do just for fun. I am going to do my best to take a look at the difference between the, that load product from uh, Massachusetts Investors Trust and the uh, Scudder Stevens no-load product to see what, what happened in terms of uh, how much ended up in the pockets of investors. But that's for another day. Today, I want to talk about the modern mutual fund. Now, obviously, uh, the, when the mutual funds came out in 1928, 
as, as we know mutual funds today. Uh, they did not have the ability to telephone transfer from one fund to another that we have today. In fact, they didn't have the ability to use the Internet and do what we do today, moving money around uh, from our mutual funds, from one fund to another, from a fund to a bank. Uh, it's, it's, it, it has, over that long period of time, um, about 90 years, uh, it has continued to improve and be better and better for investors. But the bones were there. The basics were there because the mutual fund, and, 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 when, I, and when I was thinking about these three amazing products, I wasn't thinking about three amazing products for Wall Street. I was thinking about the products that have had and are likely to continue to have an impact on the financial future of individual investors. And something else that we have today with the mutual fund that we certainly didn't have in the 1920s is the ability to invest $10 into a mutual fund. There are mutual funds that allow, they don't have any minimum. You can open them with a dollar if you wanted to. They're not asking you to do that, but you could. But what you did get with the mutual fund was treated kind of like the wealthy in that you got a diversified portfolio. Now, the, how we looked at diversification in the 20s is certainly different than today because it was believed for maybe 50 years or more that you only needed 20 or so stocks in your portfolio to be properly diversified. Uh, those beliefs have changed a lot, but these funds did offer diversification. And they have grown to offer daily liquidity. Uh, with the exchange-traded fund, as you know, you can buy and sell during the market hours, but with mutual funds, you could buy or sell at the end of a, of a trading day. You had professional management, and uh, obviously that's, that's a big deal because regardless of how high the expenses might have been or the loads to get into them, you ended up in the hands of somebody who supposedly was going to manage uh, the money uh, in a prudent way. Now, many mutual funds today are not managed in a prudent way because along with all the good things that have happened in the mutual fund industry, we now have leveraged funds uh, that allow people to make three to one on the upside and lose three to one on the downside. But, but th this professional management for the normal investor that isn't looking for something fancy, mutual funds offered something that was really slick and even when I went in the business in 1966, got licensed to, to sell mutual funds, the, uh, the big competition, if there, somebody came in who had what might be considered a lot of money at the time, they might come into a brokerage firm and buy mutual funds 
or they would do business with a local bank trust department, and the money was handled in a very prudent way. Um, and to be fair, uh, because banks really had strict regulations as to how prudent they had to be, uh, they did not they did not look as smart as mutual funds did back in the roaring sixties and when the market just took off like a rocket and the bankers were invested in very stodgy kind of high-quality companies. But in those years, there were big bucks to be made in the, uh, the companies that were more risky. Now, I don't want to get too deep here, but you got the idea. You get professional management, and you are able to get to investments that may only be available to larger investors. For example, a mutual fund may be able to get into an initial public offering that you wouldn't have a hope and a prayer to get into because you're not big enough. Or when it comes to bonds, it's one of those areas where when you buy a lot, you get a better and better price. Uh, When you're trying to buy stocks, you're trying to chase stocks and and pick up a a large block of stocks, oftentimes you you have to pay a higher price. But with bonds, generally, the bigger parcels are more fairly priced to the investor. You also got a level of service and convenience, and still you have this, by the way, and that is the uh, ability to, to... invest automatically out of a bank account into a mutual fund with 401k plans today. We have the ability to have that money be deposited into the mutual funds on a weekly or biweekly or monthly basis. And you can have check writing privileges against a mutual fund. A lot of people I know actually keep their larger amount of money that is kind of the the, the the emergency money in a in a short term bond fund with check writing privileges against that bond fund and the other advantage and this was a biggie and it it certainly got better after the crash of 1929 and by 1933 and 34 and then 1940 there were some major regulations that continued to to tighten the noose of uh, regulations to make sure that uh, uh, that the, the kind of skullduggery that went on within the industry stopped and, and cleaned up the business. But today, mutual funds are probably uh, one of the most, most regulated industries uh, in, in maybe in many ways um, more highly regulated than the banks. They also offered a person the ability to have this broadly diversified portfolio, uh, not have to worry about the stocks one by one. Of course, that's the professional management aspect of it. But mutual funds became very transparent, uh, and, and there was an ease of comparison. Now, back in the 20s, uh, of course, there weren't a lot of mutual funds to compare, but over the years, as they grew, uh, it, uh, it, it became easier and easier uh, for people to be able to, to compare and contrast uh, two different mutual fund styles. Uh, 
And then you Morningstar pops up and Value Line starts a business. Both of those companies um, are reporting on mutual funds. And I remember in the early days of Morningstar, in order to follow the funds, you had these these uh, sections of the mutual funds that came out on a regular basis. And you had this huge manual of cut that represented all the mutual funds. Today, it's just a click away at Morningstar.com. It used to cost a lot of money. Now it's free. Yes, Morningstar has more expensive information uh, uh, available where you have, to, you have to pay something. But from what I've seen, for most of us, uh, you, you, the free service is enough. But it, was, it has become so easy to compare. You can see the number of companies in a fund. You can see the, the price-to-book ratio. You can see the average size company. In fact, Morningstar will take a mutual fund, and they'll break it out as to how much of the portfolio is in large growth and large value and large blend and mid-cap growth value and blend and small cap growth value and blend and they'll even show you within small how small so the 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 detail the detail is so powerful they'll show you the after-tax returns a lot of people don't look at those after-tax returns on mutual funds but by golly they should and there are some disadvantages um, I think the the big one, the really, really big one, in terms of the fund itself, uh, it, it is the myriad of expenses that you face in a mutual fund. Uh, it's a long list of, of, in some cases, small items, in some cases, large items. But the cost of managing the funds, there are some funds that have operational expenses, which includes the management fee and the accountants and the, and the, and the custodial um, uh, transfer agent and the custodial bank and uh, the costs of annual meetings and all of the communication uh, can be as much as 2%. Now, the, I think the average equity fund is something around 1% average cost. And um, as, as time... And uh, and competition has done its its work. Uh, many of the funds now the the, the fees are down to one tenth of one percent, one twentieth of one percent, and now absolutely free in, in a couple of cases. So those expenses, those have been a huge uh, disadvantage. Because that extra one or two percent in fees, when you start talking about about multiplying that over uh, a lifetime, uh, the the compounding effect of earning another one or two percent is life changing. And then you throw on another thing, and that's taxes. Taxes can actually be as much or more in an actively managed mutual fund, and most of the mutual funds as they grew from the 20s and 30s, 40s, and, and, and even when I came into the business in the 60s, very little money was in uh, no-load funds. Most all of it was in load funds. And back then, they were taking a whack of, out of your money, 8.5% right off the top. Now, those are down to 5 or 5.75 today. 
But those are expensive fees when you multiply and compound them over, over a lifetime. And for those of us who like to think in terms of multi-generational investing, it keeps on giving either the investor or, or Wall Street uh, more money as either that, that money is compounded at a higher rate or a lower rate. Somebody gets that money. I do want it to be you. So those expenses, the fees, and the taxes... You know, back in the uh, in the seventies, uh, I believe the long term capital gain rate that at at the highest level was thirty five percent, and so who knows what the future will be? But active management, as I say, as I said, that most funds were actively managed uh, in the first fifty plus years uh, of this. Uh, of this industry, and 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 I and I do think that um, the the mutual fund really didn't give you the ability to customize your portfolio. If you look back at uh, at the kinds of the names of funds, there were capital appreciation funds and aggressive growth funds and growth and income. And sometimes if you looked at a growth and income, it could have a lot of growth and very little income or a lot of income and very little growth. It didn't pin it down like they have today uh, to having very specific asset classes. But, but in, in large part, um, it, it was difficult to customize the portfolio to your particular needs. And uh, when we talk about the next product, we'll be able to see how now that customization is absolutely possible. But the bottom line is we had this great product that probably gave people a better rate of return than they would have on their own because on their own, investors tend to get, get taken advantage of in a sense, by others, but in another sense, by their own sense of, of greed or hope or, or um, just no idea what reasonable expectations might be. But I would say that if you look at the traditional mutual fund, that at least 2 to 3% a year has been taken out of the investor's pocket, either to give to Uncle Sam or to give to, uh, uh, to the mutual fund industry, Wall Street, the salespeople, the, the banks, the custodian banks, the transfer agents. And the squeeze has been on. And when I talk about the second real life-changing product, uh, the second to the mutual fund itself, I would have to say that's the index fund. So product number one becomes available, the modern mutual fund in the 20s. And then uh, in the mid-70s, along comes Bogle's folly, the, the, the crazy idea of, uh, of running a mutual fund without active management, simply replicating 
the indexes that the, the well it was one index in the beginning the S&P 500 so in i believe august of 1976 with a whimper with a whimper not whimper not a roar of a lion but a whimper of a mouse the no load index fund is available to investors and the people who floated the first issue were planning to sell $150 million worth. $11 million were sold in the, in the public offering. There was very little interest. Why would anybody want to, on purpose, be average? Why wouldn't everybody want to have smart people going into the market and picking and when to buy, what to buy, when to sell, what to move into next, etc. Well, wasn't that the reason you paid fees to these people is to do better than just some average? And I can tell you, what because I was in this industry in the mid-60s, I was a stockbroker for less than three years from 66 to 69 and I can tell you that nobody talked in terms of what a commission was costing people over a lifetime. Commissions were exorbitant then. I'm not talking about mutual fund commissions. They were exorbitant too. But the commissions on the purchase and sale of an individual stock was, was, was high. The spread between the bid and ask was high. And then you throw on the emotions of investors. Nobody tracked what the investor return was compared to the mutual fund. The mutual fund was able to show some mountain chart, make themselves look like geniuses. But later we discovered, with the good work of, of, of Morningstar and others, as they tracked the actual cash flow in and out of mutual funds, how did the investors do? And the investors didn't do well, haven't done well, Maybe forever. But I think they're getting better. I know they're getting better. And the reasons that I know they're getting better, it's not just that, that expenses have come down and, and, and then this, this great new index fund all of a sudden not only reduced the expenses of management, but reduced the expenses of turnover because you weren't expecting the manager to buy and to sell and to buy and to sell. Turnover was a bad thing, Mr. Bogle said, not a good thing. And, in fact, um, according to studies, if you turn a portfolio over 100% in a year, it's going to cost the shareholders about 1%. Now, it might be more or less than that, but the point is there is a cost. But the index fund eliminated most of that cost. And that meant also that the without all that buying and selling, taxes were reduced. And it also happened, in fact, we really haven't until lately figured this out. But you ended up with, with the S&P 500, 500 stocks. With another index, might have 5,000, almost 5,000 stocks and the Russell 1000, and the Russell 2000, and the Russell 2000 value. 
2000 growth. I mean, you could slice and dice with indexes in a way that you never could with actively managed funds. Uh, there's an article I wrote about 30 reasons uh, to love index funds. Love might not be the right word. That makes it sound like we just love to have all that money. No, it's about your money working harder than the other way. And some of those 30, yeah, they were pretty close to each other. Maybe I could have, I could have whittled it down to 25 instead of 30. But they're all legitimate advantages of index funds. And why does hope spring eternal that you can buy actively managed funds and do better than the market? Because you can. See, that's the thing that, that gives people this possibility. Even the people who know all the facts will say, I buy actively managed funds because the studies show that one approximately out of 10 mutual funds over 15 years will in fact do better than their benchmark, the index. One out of 10. And then you want to know, okay, how do you know how to pick that one out of 10? Well, that's the tough part. <laughs> They'll say, yeah, maybe you will and maybe you won't. But if you don't, how much might you underperform the benchmark? Well, according to the studies, yeah, you're right. Doesn't look that all that good. You could underperform it by 2 or 3% a year easily. In fact, probably 1 out of 10 also underproduced by 4 or 5%. And you're willing to take the risk of ending up with less in the hopes of making a little more. And if you make a little more, it's not likely to be a lot more. It's likely to be a little more. And then all of a sudden, you've got a guy like Bill Miller who showed this phenomenal performance for 15 years, beat the S&P 500 15 years in a row. Now, nobody cared, um, it seemed, that his, his asset class really wasn't the S&P 500. All they cared about was the return was more than the S&P 500 because the S&P 500 was thought to be almost impossible to beat. Well, you probably know the rest of the story if you held it another 10 years after that amazing 15-year track record, you were in about the lowest 1% of all mutual funds in that category. So index fund investing, it, 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 it's just so unbelievably powerful. Now, let me tell you who it should be powerful to. It should be Powerful to the people who don't know what the heck they're doing. They don't know how to pick the one out of ten that might do better. Uh, they don't even know when to get in or when to get out, if that's their, their desire. They know so very little about investing. I'm not talking about people listening to this podcast right now. You probably know a lot. You probably read mutual funds for dummies. I did, and I learned a lot. Turned out 
I was a dummy. I learned things I didn't know. But most people do not take the time. There's the old story about how they spend so much time buying a refrigerator that the minute they buy it, it's going to start declining in value, depreciating. But when it comes time to do something that's going to actually have an impact on your financial future, your children's financial future, and the children of your children. Fat chance, huh? Well, you can see why index funds are so powerful. And and there's almost nothing wrong with them. I mean, I could list at least 25 things that are wrong with actively managed funds. Here's what I can come up with for an index fund. An index fund is not any fun. It's the it's the boring fund because there's no story there in the industry when I went to school back in the sixties that the New York Institute of Finance which sounds pretty highfalutin it wasn't highfalutin at all it was mostly a, a course on how to be a good salesperson and how uh, how to sell financial instruments and securities and they would tell us. You sell the sizzle, not the steak. I don't give people a bunch of numbers. They want the they want the story about how they're going to make a lot of money. Oh, don't! I mean, you can if you're going to tell them about losing money, for God's sake, don't tell them they could lose half or seventy five percent of their money if you happen to get in at the wrong time, because that's what stocks do sometimes. No, you talk about are you willing to take. Low risk or moderate risk or high risk? And then maybe when they talk about high risk, they may talk about 20%. High risk. High risk is being all in technology in 2000 through 2002 and losing 80% of the value of a diversified portfolio. Maybe 100% of the value of individual stocks within that diversified portfolio. The same kind of thing can even happen, not as deep, not as large a losses, but but in the 2000 through 2009, 10-year period, there were two times the S&P 500 lost over 50% of its value. See, at, at, at the end of the day, if you really want to try to find a weakness, in an index, uh, it is the weakness that there is absolutely no attempt to protect you against the downside. Now, a, a couple of months ago, I, maybe I did a I did a, a podcast, and I also did a pretty marginal video on small cap value. What could go wrong? And we talked about the period from 1929 to 1938 because that was the worst period for small cap value. Hypothetical results, by the way, done by the academics. But but <laughs> if they were looking for good returns, they didn't find them because during that period of time, there was a point at which you were down 80-some percent. 
but you see if you had dollar cost averaged during that 10-year period. At the end of the 10-year period, you would actually have compounded your investment at over 10% a year. So for young people, I'm not worried about going into the S&P 500 or the large cap value or the small cap value or REITs or international emerging markets. I'm not worried about you. But I am certainly worried about people who are getting close to retirement. And the problem with index funds is they do not make one, one, one teeny tiny effort to protect you against bear markets. See, what you're left with when you have a portfolio of uh, not just stocks inside of an index fund, but like myself and most of the people I know who have approached investing as my wife and I have, we have a portfolio of many index funds. So there's a portfolio of ten to 15,000 companies. And you, you, in fact, somebody recently wrote me an email that was talking about the safety of investing in these massively diversified funds. No, there is not safety when it comes to the market. The safety is from stock risk, the impact of one company out of 10,000. 10 companies out of 10,000 not making it for the rest of this year is not catastrophic. But when those are the 10 or one company you own, all of a sudden, yes, it's it's catastrophic. So there is stock risk, and that's the, the risk of that individual business standing on its own without any neighbors versus having lots of other stocks and companies in a portfolio but the market decides, for whatever reason, to go down 50%. And let's just hope we don't have a replay of what happened in the 1929 through 32, or uh, when the market was down, in some cases, uh, virtually 80%. Uh, in fact, I think some indexes were down even around 90 So... So that's the problem with index funds. So each one of us, each one of us has to do our bit. Either somebody helps us do it or we do it on our own and we figure out, okay, I'm 75. How much should I have in these great index funds and how much should I have in something that doesn't fall apart when the economy is weak or at risk? Because remember, it's not just about the risk today. Bear markets start in the face of good news, not bad. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a special group of people who see something, something here that's not going right, even though it's supposed to be going right. And maybe they're just lucky. Or maybe people just run out of money to invest and the market tops out and starts down because people have, sh have they've shot what they have, fully invested. Think it would be great if they had more, they'd go in, but they can't go in because they don't have more. And there are any number of reasons why these markets peak out and then roll over, and sometimes a lot of it has to do with the psychology of, of, our, of our economy, of our society. But at 75, 
and my wife's four years younger, we have to decide how much, how much risk do we want to have. Now, I know that probably most people, if I saw their portfolio and it would look just like mine, I would say no more than 30% in equities. At your age, that's plenty. But, in fact, because we oversaved and we really are consciously trying to leave money to help others, not just children, but also what we'll call charities, nonprofits that are important to us, including my own foundation, um, we keep maybe more in equities than we need, but that's a conscious decision. And here's what I know. I know that most people don't have, well, they have a clue. But that clue seems to kind of uh, move around in terms of how much people should have in fixed income and how much in equities. Because when left to their own devices, what we find they do is they have a tendency to to, to put more money in uh, equities when the market's high. And they don't want to put money in equities when the market's low because it feels so risky. So... It's one of the biggest challenges is that and the mutual fund industry really hasn't done it in a way. Now, they are doing it now, by the way. They are doing it now, but they haven't over the long history from the mid-20s until today. Yeah, you've got people who are in balanced funds or somebody like myself as an investment advisor or my investment advisor at the Merriman Company that takes care of us. You know, they they talk with us, they work it out. We 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 plan and 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 are very intentional about the risk that we're taking. How much to have in the hedge fund, how much to have in market timing, how much to have in buy and hold. Those are all things that we think about when we put our portfolio together. But what what the industry has needed. And it has now, and it has for some time, the target date fund. The target date fund is the third of the three great products. And in some ways, it really is the greatest. Doesn't mean it's perfect. In, in, the, uh, in the next article of this series, we're going to talk about the imperfections of target date funds. I mean, just like when the mutual funds came out in the 20s, they weren't perfect. A whole bunch of things happened to make them better and better. And eventually you get to index funds. Whoa, giant leap. And then the giant leap to target date funds. Because here's the way it used to be. When I came into the industry in the mid-60s, most people in America had a, that working people had a pension fund. That's down to about 23% of workers today or, or, or less uh, have pension funds. And here's the way the pension fund worked. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have IRAs. But the company was socking away money. That company... That, that money the company was socking away, guess what? That was, that was the workers' money. But rather than giving it to them in compensation, they did something 
very good for those people. They put the money into something like a 401k, which you're being asked to do on your own. Now you get the money, and then you put it in. So you have a chance. You don't have to put it in. You can just grab it and go spend it. But you put the money away automatically by the company, not by the employee, and it gets invested not by the company, but typically by a pension fund. Could be bank trust. I mean, there's a whole bunch of professional kinds of managers. It could be. But the key here is professional and not professional salespeople like we get at a brokerage company, but professional analysts and people who manage big money conservatively. In fact, if you screw up as a pension fund manager, then the people who you're working for are watching and 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 you can get in a lot of trouble like lose all of your assets because people are really unhappy if you aren't doing a prudent because after all we're making this obligation to pay these people money in 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 or 1 year when they retire so people just went through their life they didn't worry about the stock market oh I'm Sure, they had some other money they invested, but the big money was in that pension. And by the way, they love the pension because it guarantees them something for the rest of their life. The thing is about the stock market, you read the fine print. You know, we guarantee we can't guarantee you're gonna make money. We can't guarantee the future will look like the past. The fine print can put the fear of God in you. But they didn't feel that with a pension because somebody was doing it for you. So the money accumulated and accumulated and accumulated, and then there was this magic day that you had to choose how you wanted it distributed. Joint life expectancy or your single life expectancy and then they would pay you, let's say jointly, until you and your spouse were both dead. That could be the next week in an auto accident. Well, okay, but we guaranteed if you live to be 110, you're still going to get it. So the, the these people who run these pension funds and the actuarials, they know how much money needs to be invested in different ways. And how many people are probably going to die? Now, a lot of us are 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 are, are fooling uh, <laughs> those people because they're able to patch us together. I mean, I'm almost seventy five. I've got four stents. I have high blood pressure. I have uh, diabetes. I I have uh, a high cholesterol. Uh, my 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 kidneys are not functioning at a hundred percent, and I'm feeling great. <laughs> And I'm living a much longer than I would have if we didn't have both the the the, the magic of of drugs, the right kind, and uh, uh, and and actually, I probably even though I'm not as healthy as I should be, I still get a fair amount of exercise because I know that probably is a is an ace in the hole here that's helping me live longer than I otherwise would.
but I got that pension if I do. And by the way, I don't. Those people had that pension for a lifetime. I know couples today where they both worked for the government, making with Social Security and their pensions, etc., over $150,000 a year going in every year. Don't have to worry about the stock market. In fact, they've been willing to be pretty aggressive with their with this one couple I'm thinking of, with their stock portfolio, because they got $150,000 a year coming in. So, why can't we give that same thing to people with their investments? And we do. It's the target date fund. I am going to, when I teach my classes at Western, when I go up there once a quarter, uh, they allow me to come in and teach a couple of hours. I'm going to have them coming out of there so pumped to take advantage of a target date fund if they are not willing to you know, buckle down and dig in and learn how to do this in a way that, you, that you're going to have to then kind of be responsible for your actions, and a lot of people don't want to be responsible for their actions in life. They always want somebody else to. I'm the same way. Got a plumbing problem? I call somebody who's a professional. I don't, I don't want to end up being the loser that I probably would be if I did it myself or electrical. I've even got somebody now who gets up on ladders, not just for me, but for my wife as well. Neither one of us should be going up and changing lights. Now I want somebody else to be responsible. And when I look at how people treat themselves as investors, how they allow their emotions to override the right thing to do, by the way, we never know the right thing to do. I mean, we can see afterwards what we should have done, that, that part's easy. But I'm talking about the right thing to do, given the odds then are in your favor and not out of your favor, which is unfortunately what happens to too many investors. So here we have the target date fund. The only difference between that and the pension fund is that it, it is that you have to put the money in instead of the company putting it in. Hopefully they'll match. But you put it in the target date fund and you say, I want to retire in 2060. All right, we'll invest that money between now and 2060, the right amount of equity now and the right amount of equity when you retire. And it will be going down slowly over time, the, the exposure to equity. Because... They think they know. Now, they don't know, but they at least know what is more prudent than what a lot of other people would think would be appropriate. I know people who have, even when they're almost at retirement or even in retirement, they still basically have all inequities. I just, I just think there's a time that you pass the baton of risk to, to the people who should be carrying it. But not everybody agrees with that, and sometimes those people who have all the guts to stay in equities right up to the, to the end, and, and they've done well because they did that. They look like geniuses, maybe. So the target date fund, 
which, by the way, is a mutual fund. It's all the things and more by a thousand times than what Massachusetts Investors Trust and Scudder Stephen Clark did in the 20s. It's just a mutual fund. And then, not in all cases, but in the cases that I want you to be using if you can, yeah, throw the index fund in that mutual fund. So now you have the two, two greatest products in one fund, and then you throw in a professional manager whose job it is to actually address your risk. When you buy the S&P 500 and you don't ever make a change in it, you are 100% in equities for the rest of your life. And if I were your investment, personal investment advisor, and I did that to you, you could sue me. If I didn't recommend you get out of part of that and start putting it into fixed income, On the other hand, if you get a target date fund, they're taking your risk seriously, not because they care one whit about an individual in that portfolio of hundreds of thousands and eventually millions who are of the same approximate age, but it's financial financial heaven in terms of the emotions By the way, most of the emotions. You'll still be worried about what's happening to the account because it's your account. It's not a house account like the pension fund tends to be. It's your account and you're looking at it and, oh my God, I had plans to retire in two years, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen now. It still isn't the same as a pension at the end of the time when you quit and start getting a check. The next week, in between this particular podcast and the next one that I do in this series of three that are leading up to the two funds for life strategy, uh, I'm, I'm going to be talking about how to start, how to create your own pension so that you can, in fact, have that stay, same wonderful feeling of knowing every month you're going to have a check. And there's nothing magic about it, but there's the right way to buy those things and there's a wrong way. And I want to make sure that that you're doing it the right way. So there's the three great products. The mutual fund, diversification, professional management, then the index fund, lower fees, more diversification, lower taxes, more control, better likelihood of ending up in the top 10%. What a thing to actually believe. Who knows what's going to happen, but you could actually believe from everything we know about the past that if you simply invested in index funds, you would be in the equity part of the portfolio, in the asset class that you have chosen, you will likely be in the top 10%. And that's not a reason. Well, it is a reason to brag, I guess, that you were smart enough not to take the gamble, the speculation that you could find the funds that would beat you. You will run into somebody who will likely say, oh, oh, well, I put all my money with Warren Buffett. Well, folks, Warren Buffett hasn't beat the the, the market indexes, the benchmarks that it competes against as far as I'm concerned for over the, over the last 15, 20 years. 
So it's um, it's not all that easy, even picking the Warren Buffets of the world. Uh, well, it's easy to pick Warren Buffett. It's just unlikely he's ever going to make 20 to 25% a year as he did in the early years of his uh, of his fund or his company. Well, there you go. I hope that's a, and I know it's maybe boring to some of you that know all this already, but I want this to be the foundation. Someday somebody's going to listen to this podcast, I hope, and they don't know all this stuff, and that they will go read Mutual Funds for Dummies, and uh, that they will read up on target date funds. But uh, as I say in the next of this three-part series, I'll be talking about the weaknesses of target date funds. And in the last of the three, I'm going to show you as best I can how with just some real simple steps and some formulas I think you're going to love, how you can establish for life a strategy that uses uh, two funds. So stay tuned, and uh, I'm always open to feedback if there's something you'd like me to dig any deeper into and that I discussed in this particular podcast. Thanks again. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.